Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome back to the first solo episode of the year. Happy New Year to everyone. I know in the UK things are pretty similar to how they were a few months back still. We're in lockdown number three during this time of recording. I know that other countries like New Zealand and Australia are actually doing pretty well at the moment with the whole COVID virus situation. But yeah, in places like the UK, we got to hang in there. We have to keep going, hopefully Easter time. Fingers crossed, things will be a little bit better. But I thought that for this episode, I would recap or repurpose some Instagram lives that I did. So on Instagram from, I think, October till December of 2020, I did weekly Q&As just to kind of chat with you guys and answer any questions that you have. Obviously, if there's questions that you want to have me answer on the podcast, then you can always send me a DM or you can send me an email and I'll try and answer them. But I thought I'd repurpose it because I know that some people, they don't like to watch IGTVs. I'm personally one of them. I have IGTVs on my profile, but I personally like to listen to things and not have to sit down and watch a video. Plus, I'm one of those weird people who listen to everything in two time double speed. Um, So you can't really do that with an IGTV. So for those of you who are the same, or maybe you did listen to the IGTVs, but it's always good to recap then this episode is going to be for you and the next few solo episodes that I do so probably one a month will be in this similar format and I covered a ton of different subjects so things like celery juicing I've actually stopped doing this for a while because it was hard to get celery um, in large amounts and I was going through like um, 14 packs a week because I'd need two packs a day and it was just really difficult to get enough and in order for us to get the proper benefits you need to do it consistently I've heard so I'm having a couple of months off maybe in spring I'll start again because I really did see some benefits um, particularly with digestion because I found that I had H. pylori in, um, in last year as well I think I've had that for probably over five years and it just didn't show on stool testing but I struggled on and off with things like reflux and acne and rosacea and um, nutrient deficiencies so I knew that there was potentially an issue with that infection but it just never showed so I never actually treated up until recently and with H. pylori it's a bacteria that lives in the stomach and it can suppress your stomach acid and in order to recover from that you need to heal that issue obviously get rid of the bacteria first but then restore um, with things like sodium and B vitamins and zinc and the celery juice really helped me do that. I haven't yet retested, I'm actually waiting for my GI map results over the next few weeks. And so maybe I'll share on Instagram 
if you stay tuned but yeah we'll talk about cell reducing and my reasons for doing it what i benefited from during that time how to home test for mold so things like the ermi test i talk about um, PMDD, so premenstrual dysphoric disorder and how that differs from regular PMS. Um, antibiotics, parasites, histamine issues, hormone replacement therapy, especially for someone with hypothalamic amenorrhea or missing periods due to stress, undereating, um, overexercising those things. Yeast and candida, autoimmunity, hormones and fertility. So a wide range of subjects. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into the episode. 10 packs of celery. I spent 10 pounds on them earlier and it's because I'm doing celery juice. I've heard of this for many years now from the medical medium but I've decided to give it a try because I don't like to shun or diss anything that I've never done myself. Some of this stuff like removing eggs because of the viruses I'm not massively sold on um, and the vegan diet as you probably know that's not my vibe, but I'm happy to give the celery juice a try because to me it actually makes sense. So it helps to remineralize the um, body. It's high in minerals like sodium and potassium, which my recent HTMA her mineral test showed that I was low in. And having had a H. pylori infection probably for the past five years, it's only been detected in the past couple of years, but it's still there, still causing issues with digestion and absorption by the looks of things. So it's going to help me to recover my stomach acid now that I've hopefully cleared it with another antibacterial protocol. So I'm using it as a therapeutic tool. You can't just add it in and expect for all of your symptoms to clear up. That's probably why it's gotten a bad rap, but it could be used as food as medicine just as its um, special nutrients. So I shall keep you all posted and updated as to how I find it, but I'm excited to give things a try. I'm a bit of a guinea pig when it comes to health. So we'll get started. Now, someone asked, can you still have low progesterone if your luteal phase is 11 to 12 days? Example, how to know if progesterone is optimal, I think she's trying to write. So yes, you can still have an 11 to 12 day luteal phase with low progesterone. Um, at least you're producing some, it sounds like. And someone with a 14-day luteal phase leading up to a period can still have low progesterone. So obviously the length and the duration of that progesterone is good for things like fertility because that's going to allow the egg implantation to happen much more likely. But yes, you can still have a 14-day luteal phase, which is considered like optimal, but have very low progesterone levels throughout. Did I test or inspect my new apartment? Mine is eight years old, but the bathroom smells a bit musty. I personally didn't, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but it is an old building, but it was completely ripped out and um, renovated. And I have the nose of a bloodhound when it comes to mold now. So when I went in, I could just tell it was clean, safe, pure environment. Um, so I didn't want to spend the money on testing because I had a lot of stuff to pay for in terms of my mold detox and new furniture and all of that. So I prioritized, but if you are struggling with your health and you're unsure, then it's always worth paying, what, like 200, 300 pounds for a mold test. I personally recommend the ERMI test if you're going to do them. And I think it's the dust test um, or the cloth and Swiffer test. So it's really worth speaking to the company. There's Immunolytics or there's, what's the other one? 
immunolytics is the only one that's coming to my mind for mold testing. But if you go back to my mold episodes, I think it's number 79 and 80, then I recommend more on body and home testing for mold. Hello, any tips for PMDD? Any thoughts around vegan plant-based diets? So um, Madeline, I'm not a fan of um, vegan plant-based diets because I don't think they provide enough nutrients, bioavailable nutrients for female reproductive hormones. And um, for PMDD, if you're eating a plant-based diet and you have that issue, then that could be why. You actually need nutrients like zinc and iron to regulate your mood. So it could be that you're not having enough or absorbing enough. Because on paper, some of these like lentils and spinach look like they have a lot of nutrients and minerals in there. But when you actually absorb them or when they get into the body, it's very hard for you to absorb them because they are bound to anti-nutrients or things like lectins in the system. So um, for PMDD, it's kind of like a more extreme version, version of PMS. So kind of all the same things apply, making sure that your blood sugar is regulated with enough animal protein would be my top recommendation. And if you're wanting to transition, then obviously start slowly with more fish and um, eggs and seafood as opposed to like a big chunk of steak. You're probably not going to do that. Um, so blood sugar, sleep, stress management, gut health, detoxification, making sure that you're clearing that excess estrogen or estrogen out from the body um, and supporting your progesterone with stress management, but maybe vitamin C might be useful for you as well, but check with your practitioner. Would I recommend only using Megaspore probiotic after taking antibiotics with a practitioner? Not necessarily, so I recommend um, I recommend Megaspore probiotic, which is a spore-based probiotic, pretty much to anyone, regardless of if they've been on antibiotics or not. But definitely, that is a key time to take it after antibiotics, when you're traveling, when it's cold and flu season. So if you're pretty healthy overall, then maybe cycling in the probiotic every three months or a couple of times a year could be a good option. If you can, taking it daily. And unlike other probiotics, you don't really need to rotate them. So that's a common, like, selling point you need to try my probiotic you need to switch it up but with the spore-based probiotics these are actually types of bacteria that we've evolved with so you don't need to like take 300 billion um, probiotic colony forming units the spores i think there's five million in there but they're super effective at regulating just the overall environment of the gut how to increase cervical fluid Hydration is like step one, and that's often forgotten. So it's a fluid, it's a liquid, so you need adequate hydration levels in the body, making sure that your estrogen levels are optimal. Um, other signs of low estrogen could be vaginal dryness, like other times, pain upon intercourse, could be hot flashes, night sweats, um, anxiety, mood issues, bone, skin issues, dryness elsewhere. That would also be a sign that your estrogen is too low. It may just be the time that you're in your cycle. So there are fluctuations with cervical mucus that's totally normal and expected. So leading up to ovulation, it's going to be the most copious. So checking if you're ovulating uh, by tracking your cycle, your temperatures. But after your period and whilst you're on your period, the cervical mucus production is going to be pretty low. If you're someone who's been on the birth control pill for a long time, then that's actually going to suppress your cervical mucus production as well. That's another way that it helps you not fall pregnant. So it could just be that you need more time to rebalance after being on the pill.
best schooling option if you don't want to spend four years to become a naturopathic doctor. So it depends on, I'm guessing you're, you're wanting to do something similar to myself. So like kind of um, doing most of the same things as a naturopathic doctor, but you can't diagnose and you can't prescribe medication. So I personally, I would rather do what I'm doing than being a doctor. This is just so much extra hassle with that. So it depends on what country you're in as well. If you're in the UK or Europe, then I'd recommend the college that I went to and um, will be lecturing at um, for the, over the next couple of months called the College of Naturopathic Medicine. They do an online course as well now. But I That wasn't an option when I was studying. I did the in-person. I think they have probably five or six UK satellite colleges. I went to the one in Manchester. If you're in America, then you can look into Functional Diagnostic Nutrition or FDN, or you can look into the Nutrition Thera Nutritional Therapy Association or NTA. Those two, I've had colleagues and friends who've been through those. I know there's other ones like IIN, the Institute of Integrated Nutrition. It's like a very popular one, but I personally wouldn't do that. It's just very like diet-based and you don't get the chance to do like functional lab testing or anything like that. So I would personally do either of those two. Why do some people get extremely low back pain whilst they're on the period? This is usually due to prostaglandins in the body, which are kind of inflammatory molecules. And we need some degree of them. Like we need some inflammation in the body to fight infection and heal from infections and injury. But an excess of prostaglandins can cause things like loose stools around your period. It can cause pelvic pain and menstrual cramps as well. So I would look into the types of fats that you're eating because a lot of the action of prostaglandins are influenced by your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. So if you're eating, even sometimes in healthy foods, it can be hidden with things like canola oil, sunflower, soybean oil, things like hummus and like snack bars and vegan like frozen meals. They can all hide some of those oils in there because they're cheap. But that would be my first recommendation, making sure that you're eating enough omega-3s from high quality animal products like grass-fed beef has that in. Fish can have omega-3s in as well. I would rule out or investigate further into endometriosis if you feel like that could be a factor, especially if your periods are heavy um, and clotted or you have um, pelvic pain at the same time. It could be due to endometriosis. If it's just lower back pain, that could be kind of your area of weakness. And when your body's run down and your immune system's shifting whilst you're starting your period, then that could just target that area. Whereas for someone else, they have um, migraines or they have sleep issues around the period. It all just depends on where your genetic or your weak links are in your body. And you could do some topical things, so like magnesium spray, magnesium baths with Epsom salts. You could do some essential oils on the area. If it's like where the kidneys are, then it could be adrenal based. So if your adrenals are really overworked or really sluggish, sometimes people can get lower back pain. And again, that's probably just flared up around your menstrual cycle because your body's a little bit depleted at that time. So just a few thoughts to consider. Generally speaking, how long should one do an anti-candida protocol to see results for chronic yeast infections that won't go away? I'm using other elements as well, like megaspore, caprylic acid, and colostrum. 
So candida, um, most gut infections are going to take probably eight to 12 weeks to clear. And with yeast, you have to remember that yeast and candida and fungus is more of like a, a surface level problem. So you need to look deeper as to why that is. Otherwise, the issue is probably going to come back or it's going to be very difficult for you to heal. So usually at the roots of yeast infections would be a suppressed immune system. So this can be from stress or things like heavy metals, environmental toxins, mold, and other larger infections in the gut, things like H. pylori and parasites. It's making sure that you're addressing all of those things simultaneously or at some point in the protocol, that's going to give you the best results. What would be the key blood check indicators to see if your body is ready for periods in hypothalamic amenorrhea? So making sure that your estrogen is elevated so that your uterine lining can grow. So monitoring your estrogen over however long you've had the amenorrhea for. That should be improving over time. And you're looking for this reference ranges a lot of the time in blood work. So you're looking for the follicular phase because you're not in your ovulation and probably a luteal phase. And another one would be your FSH to LH. So your FSH, if your body is preparing the follicle, it would increase. If it's both of them are flatlined, then that just tells me that your body's not even trying at the moment to do anything. But if you see the numbers increasing, um, your FSH and LH increasing, then that would also be a good sign that your brain and your ovaries are starting to communicate again. Definitely if your LH, your luteinizing hormone, is very high, and at one point, then that could show that you've actually ovulated or your body's trying or preparing to ovulate. Um, and then as a result, your period would show up. Sometimes people have caught the period going to come before it actually does after years of not having a period because they've checked that as well. You could actually start checking your temperatures, your basal body temperature, just every morning. First thing is your eyes open in bed. And if your temperatures are very low chronically, then that could be a sign that your thyroid is sluggish. You could also check your thyroid in blood work, making sure that your TSH is between one and two and your T3 is improving. It's a bit different depending on the country for the optimal ranges, but just making sure your thyroid's improving, your nutrient levels, your vitamin D, um, B12, all of that. So you're just looking for improvements overall and how you're feeling personally, not just going off a blood test. Like, are you sleeping better? Is your libido higher? Is your energy better in the evenings? These are all good signs. What do I think of bioenergetic stress testing? So I'm not too sure what you mean by that. I don't know if you mean like bioresonance, but bioresonance, I've never done it personally, but I really want to. And I do believe that it's it can be really accurate. I've had people chronically sick, nothing's ever shown up on blood work, even dysfunctional lab tests. And they've had bioresonance and it shows things like parasites and mold and viruses and all of these things. And it was actually very accurate. So I really want to do it, but obviously um, with COVID and everything, I'm not gonna, I don't think there's actually any open right now, but I'm not sure what the stress testing side of things. If it's just checking like your adrenal function, through bioresonance, then probably would be a good a good thing to try. But I wouldn't rely on that totally. I'd probably do something like a Dutch adrenal test to actually see how much cortisol your adrenals are making. Because maybe on the bioresonance, it's just that day. Like if it's been a particularly stressful morning, your adrenals are going to be a little bit different. Whereas the Dutch, it gives you a better average as to how well your body's functioning 
over the past few months. Do you need to be cautious of vitamin additives or supplements when you have a histamine intolerance? And I also, I'll combine this with another question because someone asked what supplements can trigger acne. So with histamine issues, yes, the, the cold excipient in medication or supplements can actually trigger the immune system and make things worse. You need to be very careful. And that's why people get given allergy medications by their doctor and maybe it's got titanium dioxide in there or it's got a little bit of lactose that can be enough for someone with more serious and severe muscle activation, those types of things, um, that can really send them over the edge. If you just have mild histamine intolerance, then probably not. I always recommend like good quality supplements anyway, so don't be buying them like off cheap websites and preferring things like uh, capsules and powders and liquids over tablets a lot because your gut's probably compromised as well. But nutrients for histamine that can make it a little bit worse any B vitamins that are made from like anything fermented, so a lot of whole food vitamin C, uh, vitamin B supplements are made from fermented yeast and corn, and all of these things. Some vitamin C can be made from fermented corn as well, so that might be an issue. Excessive levels of folate and B12 can also be histamine trigger, so be mindful of that. Anything fermented, anything aged. That's another one for histamine. Anything with like citric acid, because that is derived from corn as well. And then for acne, some common supplements that can trigger acne would be anything stimulating. So things like ginseng, things like um, B vitamins in too high of a dose. So B12 and folate again, definitely. But biotin, then that's pretty well known that biotin can cause acne in high doses, yet it's promoted for like her skin and nail formula. May not be the best option. Another one could be excessive levels of um, the fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin D, but often that, cause, that can cause an acne trigger because it's supporting the immune system of the skin. So it can actually help the skin to recognize an infection or inflammation or clogged pore, and then it causes slight purging. So I sometimes see that, but it's usually due to um, it's usually a temporary reaction. And then what else? Things like iodine can be a trigger for acne in high doses, but sometimes iodine is needed to actually resolve hormone imbalances and, um, and skin issues. They would be the main ones that I see most commonly. Thoughts on essential oils? I don't, I actually use them today because I had like an ear, earache for some reason. I think it's because I, dropped my headphones in the bottom of my bag and there must have been like some dirt or bacteria in there and then I put them in and then I had like I didn't know if it was my teeth or my ear because it was like right at the back somewhere but I didn't want to it to, de to develop so I put some tea tree oil diluted on a cotton bud or a q-tip and put that in swished it around and within like 20 minutes it had gone so I think they work, there's a time and a place, but I'm not into like, drinking essential oils or having them internally. Definitely not. Even brands like Dolterra who tell you that you can, I would really recommend not doing that because there's just really no long-term research done on that. I don't think it's safe. But for things like anxiety, like inhaling some lavender oil before bed or when you're stressed or mixing a little bit of lavender into 
um, some oil for when you burn yourself, tea tree, a little bit of a spot treatment could be good, a little bit of peppermint to inhale when you have congestion. So there's a time and a place, but I'm not like a super late, super obsessed with essential oils. What are my thoughts on seed cycling? So not the biggest fan. I've not seen it make the biggest difference, if I'm honest. And with hormone imbalances, they're going to need a lot more than just some seeds in your diet. So if you're not doing the basics and you're just adding seed cycling, you're probably wasting your time. And some people don't do well with seeds, like digestively. So if they're trying to like eat all of this stuff, but maybe they have a gut infection causing the hormone imbalances in the first place, then they're probably just making the issue worse. So it's worth a try if you want to give it a go and you notice direct benefits from doing so then be my guest go ahead but it wouldn't be my first go-to with my clients i see much more effective things and the the premise behind it is that the first part of the cycle you do flax and pumpkin uh, flax and sunflower seeds to support estrogen production and then the second half of the cycle the luteal phase you would do sunflower and sesame i think i was getting mixed up to to support progesterone levels some people swear by it they think it's what helped them get their period back or fall pregnant so you can't kind of fight that but there's usually other things at play and yeah i'm not the biggest fan so last question was about my whole celery juice thing again i've got my celery here and so the reason that i'm doing it is um, to support my stomach acid levels and just kind of add some additional minerals to my body and also just want to test out because I'm a bit of a geek and I want to be a guinea pig and check um, test to see how I feel and they asked how long am I trying celery juice for and how much do I consume so I'm I've been doing it for probably a week or two now every morning I juice maybe one or two of this size I don't know they call bunches of celery one to two bunches of celery. It depends on what juice you use because um, different blenders and juices cause create more juice, obviously. I'm gonna try it for about two months, I think, at least. I think that's the recommended time. You can't really notice major results within a week. So I'm gonna try it for two weeks. And I think it makes probably like three to 500 milliliters of fluid, which I think is between 10 and 20 ounces i don't know i get confused with this but i think that sounds about right basically like a a glass full but always start slowly work your way up because it can cause a bit of a detoxification reaction and i always make sure that it's not freezing cold as well and keep it in your mouth for a little bit to warm it up otherwise it can um, be a little bit cold on the gut and i believe that it's best had on its own so you don't really mix anything else into it so i know people say like why can't you just blend it into your smoothie or just eat the celery on its own but it's actually just the pure celery on its own that's the most effective so not even adding any lemon or herbs to it first thing in the morning upon waking on an empty stomach then i wait about 15 minutes before having my breakfast and then i have a smoothie so starting my day with liquids only works really well for me um, I do have an appetite in the morning, which is good, but I like to have, I love my morning smoothie. It's my favorite meal of the day. And that is how it's best 
absorbed just first thing the juice goes straight into the kind of bloodstream um, and the cells and then you have your food afterwards so i'm just going to do as it says see how it goes and we'll keep you posted on social media do you love coffee but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne pms and period problems honestly most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking but what if i told you there was a coffee option that tastes great is organic and mold free and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores enter organo king coffee my latest obsession i didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess but king coffee does the exact opposite don't worry it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs and if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there i promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits if you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or ganoderma then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity or suppressed because of things like chronic infections and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the ratio can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics the regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. When in the healing process should you get rid of parasites? So this is a good question because um, with usual gut infections, you have to prepare the body and kind of wait till towards the end before you actually do something about it. So for example, with SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, you can't just go straight in and kill off or attack the infection because you're probably gonna feel terrible. So you need to spend a couple of months, depending on the person, building up the adrenals, strengthening the immune system um, addressing any constipation or any poor detoxification first and if SIBO is still a problem at that at that point depending on how severe it is sometimes it can just kind of resolve on its own when you address the thyroid and the motility but usually it comes last when you're dealing with something like SIBO or candida overgrowth parasites are a little bit different so the more that I've been learning about parasites um, it does come pretty soon into the journey because it can actually be hard for you to heal and get to the next level in your healing if you have the parasites there in the first place. So you would start with um, addressing any constipation and making sure that your energy and your mitochondria is like okay. Like if your 
exhausted and bed bound with fatigue you wouldn't go in at that point because you don't have the battery pack you don't have the reserves there to start killing things off whereas if you have some energy you address any constipation you're going to the bathroom at least once ideally two to three times every day um, and you've done kind of some opening of the the detox pathways there's some products with cellcore so the, the brand who i do parasite cleansing through they have some products it's known as phase one or like the intro first stage of the process that just give you like gentle nutrients and gentle um, mitochondria and digestive support maybe some bowel mover making sure that your bowels are moving but parasites are addressed pretty soon into the process because if you don't knock them out then you can't address other things like heavy metals mold SIBO, viruses, Lyme disease, etc. So I used to say like towards the end, but parasites are the exception in that. So maybe a couple months into um, your protocol. But I think this person who asks is like already eating a good diet and doing a lot of the right things because I see her um, commenting and posting and things. So you might be able to go straight into it. So it's dependent on the person, but maybe within the first couple of months. Um, they need to be looked into. Is hormone replacement therapy only a band-aid solution for hypothalamic amenorrhea when estrogen continues to be low? Yes. So hormone replacement therapy is, um, it can be useful. So if it makes sense as to why the person has low hormones, for example, if they're menopausal or they've had a hysterectomy and the um, ovaries removed, for example, then the person probably will need some additional support and a boost to their body just to function whereas if someone has had all the testing um conventionally and have been told that they just have hypothalamic amenorrhea and that nothing else is going to work other than hrt um that's not a good enough answer in my opinion it is kind of just a band-aid solution and there are multiple root causes for hypothalamic amenorrhea um, Eating enough food, which can be a struggle, especially if you've got digestive issues, but it needs to and can be done. And um, yeah, the stress piece, the gut piece, really important, but also time and patience is also needed. But everyone needs to do what works best for them. If that in your heart of heart feels like the best option for you to do, just to give you peace of mind with your bone health and things like that, then you have to kind of do that. I personally went two years without a period. Maybe you could consider that being a little bit longer. Being on the pill for two years, that's not a real period. But doctors do try and scare you into thinking that your bones are going to crumble if you don't have your period for a couple of months. Obviously, it's not a good sign. Um, and it's not a sign of overall health. But I just feel like there's so much more that can be done. How to support my gut after food poisoning. Um, when your body has food poisoning, it's already doing a good job on its own at getting the infection or the problem out. So that's why you have diarrhea. That's why you have vomiting. Your body does it on its own. And if you think evolutionarily, we wouldn't have all of these products and probiotics and things to turn to. So when the gut is free from irritation and free from any um, toxins or irritants, it does heal and regenerate on its own within about three days time. So obviously when we talk about leaky gut and it has some permeability, it's going to take a lot longer for most people than just three days, but that's because there's multiple factors involved. So if it's just food poisoning, um, you may not need to do anything, but I always like to just give my body a helping hand 
and um, provide things like um, probiotics. So my personal favorite are spore-based probiotics, not just the regular lactobacillus bifidobacterium. They don't really do much um, good, in my opinion. The brands do vary, but I prefer to use spore-based probiotics, which are clinically studied, and they're shown to um, do a ton of things, but particularly with leaky gut there's been studies that in 30 days they reversed or really dramatically reduced leaky gut markers which is an amazing um amazing kind of research that's been done from from the team it's great for acne even metabolic syndrome so my first go-to would be the probiotics you could also do easy to digest foods because going in with like big bowls of salads and grains and nuts and seeds um, complex cold like harsh meals when you're gut sensitive then you're just kind of making the issue worse so think of your gut as being like a baby's gut you want to do lots of warming foods soups and stews and broths bone broth can be great as well if you, if you're tolerant of that if you're tolerant of fermented foods and you don't get kind of histamine reactions from that that can be good for just some general um, beneficial bacteria and prebiotics as well prebiotic fibers but some fasting can also be good depends on the person if you're like very underweight or malnourished or struggling with adrenal or thyroid issues then probably not but if you're like pretty robust overall you could do some gentle fasting because that is really just allowing your gut to take a break and just deal with the problem sometimes you're actually turned away from food anyway naturally um your appetite suppressed so most people just ignore that and just push through but animals do the, th do the same. When they're sick, they don't eat um, like three meals a day. They just rest and then your appetite will come back when your body's ready to accept the food. And herbal teas can be great as well. So things like ginger, marshmallow, um, and um, slippery elm can be good if you can tolerate that one. Chamomile can be very soothing and calming to the gut, especially if there's lots of cramps and spasms. So they are just a few examples. But if you're on live and you have any questions, you can put them in the comment section. Let me check Facebook now if there's any questions. Nope, so you can ask them, but I'll prioritize the, the pre-submitted ones from yesterday. Okay, so how to check for parasites if the basic still test came back clear. So this is a thing and this has really been emphasize for me with my own personal parasite experience i've done stool testing i do at least one stool test every year up until now um, for the past five or six years and initially they did show with parasites like three times in a row and they were quite tricky to get rid of and i eventually cleared them and then for the past few years it's come back negative for parasites but i don't believe that that's true because even the best stool tests like the gi map which is a PCR test. It's only checking for like seven out of potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of parasites. So to say that you're completely clear just because the stool test has come back negative, I don't believe that is true. So I would probably just assume that you have them if you've never if you've never treated, if you're from um, countries that maybe don't have the best sanitation. Maybe you do a lot of traveling to third world countries or even just um, you've been in a lot of international travel. Maybe you eat sushi regularly. Maybe you eat pork. Maybe you have animals and dogs and let them lick your face or sleep in your bed. We deworm our pets, hopefully, 
on a consistent basis but we don't think that we have a problem even though we are also mammals and um, you can go off symptoms as well so if your symptoms get worse around the full moon and there's a full moon coming up at the end of the month so be mindful of your symptoms and the patterns with them but symptoms like teeth grinding and anxiety maybe your sleep gets affected you get insomnia you get irritable um, your digestive issues get worse you get headaches teeth clenching i think i've said that wrong but yeah these are all really good signs that you might have a parasite and i had dr todd watts on who's like the parasite guy and he famously says if you've got a pulse you've got a parasite so i'll leave it with that one lichen sclerosis can be an autoimmune disorder question mark yes it is an autoimmune disorder so i have another question on autoimmune so maybe i'll skip to that one now but lichen sclerosis is one of them and once you have one autoimmune condition you're more likely to develop another one so other examples would be um, lupus hashimoto's thyroiditis psoriasis rheumatoid arthritis celiac disease so it all depends on your genetic predisposition and your genetic weak links as to where this autoimmune attack appears um, so yeah let's go on to the next question what are the first steps if diagnosed with an autoimmune condition so in order to develop an autoimmune condition three things are needed that genetics and um, so either mum's side or dad's side even if they weren't formally diagnosed maybe maybe they were just healthy and didn't express those genes or maybe they had some just lingering health issues but were never diagnosed maybe they were overlooked so for example celiac disease is where the the intestines are the focus of the autoimmune attack psoriasis it's the skin that's the focus Hashimoto's it's the thyroid and so on so first steps would be um well i'll go through the other two things so you need genetics you need a leaky gut so intestinal permeability um, and you also need an environmental trigger that could be a viral infection that could be food poisoning that could be a divorce or a major stress in your life that then activates the genes and allow the autoimmune process to start so the first steps i would do would be to um, work on gut health because that's where the home of your immune system is and with it being an autoimmune condition your gut really is the focus so there's probably some bacterial imbalances going on um, SIBO is very commonly linked to autoimmune as are parasites yeast overgrowth and on the gi map stool test there's certain bacteria that are in a section called autoimmune triggers so things like klebsiella and citrobacter um, um, yeah prevotol is the main one that's linked to rheumatoid arthritis um, another one is fusobacterium these aren't they don't cause autoimmune but they're highly linked so they've done studies and found that people with this specific autoimmune condition have higher rates of that so it's correlation not necessarily causation but work with someone on your gut health work on your stress management and consider removing gluten from your diet because there's a lot of research that gluten causes um, leaky gut or that intestinal permeability so we're bombarded by other potential drivers of leaky gut that we can't really control but so if we can control one thing which is removing gluten from the diet then it's it's worth doing in my opinion so i have another question from hannah on facebook 
She's asking, how do I test for Hashimoto's or are there any common symptoms? Yeah, so Hashimoto's test would be thyroid peroxidase antibodies or TPO or thyroglobulin antibodies, TG. So this can be done on blood work. Um, if you're in the UK, it can be pretty tricky. It depends, it's like postcode lottery as to whether doctors are willing to do it. I tend to find if you're working with someone who can write a letter to them, they're much more likely to be on board rather than you just going in there asking for these specific tests. So blood test would be the way forward. Um, if you're in the US, sometimes it's covered by insurance. Sometimes you, you do need to pay privately, but it's not too expensive. That said, even if that comes back normal and your antibodies come back negative, you can't relate Hashimoto's because it's such a fluctuating condition. You could have caught it on a good day and then the next day it could have spiked up um, and elevated. And sometimes the immune system's just so out of whack that antibodies don't show up for a while, but there is still that process going on in the thyroid gland. The longer that's left, the more damage your thyroid becomes because it's being attacked by the immune system mistakenly. And then you get to the point where your thyroid's physically damaged and it can no longer function. So that you would need to then go on medication. So you don't want to wait until it gets to that point. That's what your doctors are waiting for. But you can actually intervene, start doing things about it. The gluten-free thing would be the first one and all of that stuff I just mentioned on autoimmune. And symptoms can affect every single, they can be involved in every single body system. That's why it can be so overlooked and so confusing for some people because there is a thyroid receptor on every single cell of the body. So everything from the head, um, hair loss, brain fog, depression, anxiety, joint pain. It can be skin issues, digestive issues, palpitations, menstrual irregularities, infertility. can be down to the bottom of the feet with um, plantar fasciitis, sciatica, toenail issues even, like everything. And in the initial stages of Hashimoto, so the first few years or months, you can flip between hyper and hypo symptoms. So some days you might feel really sluggish and depressed and cold and constipated and exhausted. Um, and that's more like low thyroid function. But then the next day you might flip to a hyper symptom. So you might be the total opposite. You might be hot, sweaty, diarrhea, irritable, insomnia, um, tons of energy, like feeling anxious and on edge, you can't sit still. So some people experience that flip-flop between the two symptoms for the first few years, but then over time you start to just become sluggish and more hypothyroid. So I hope that answers your question, Hannah. Okay, um, so someone's put like a two-part question here. So natural healing for Crohn's, getting so many yeast infections that won't go away. I never used to get infections before she started um healing naturally so i think she um i think she messaged me this as well or put put this somewhere else but what i think's happened is that you've gone in with um like things like herbs and antimicrobials just to kill off bacteria and in that process you've kind of irritated or angered the yeast overgrowth that's probably always been there this is kind of what happens with antibiotics as well. People go on antibiotics and then they end up with a yeast infection. So some of these herbal formulas are powerful. Um, so 
just because it's oregano or berberine or neem or garlic doesn't mean that it it's not dangerous like it can cause problems especially if you're trying to self-treat that's the downside so it, it sounds like you you're wanting to heal your gut so you read all of this information online and then you make things worse it could be that you've just brought it to the surface so you've probably always had some sort of yeast or candida overgrowth internally but now you've been removing foods removing irritants from your immune system and your immune system's now a little bit stronger so that your body's trying to fight off the yeast. But in that process, the symptoms have got a little bit worse. So I don't know how long it's been going on for, but it can just be like a healing crisis or a detoxification reaction. Um, so, so it's your question, Ariel. Um, my life cut out the first part when you were responding. So I've not said much. You could always watch this back on the catch-up, but basically I said that when you start to self-treat and maybe you took a lot of antimicrobial herbs, so things that kill off bacteria in the gut, garlic, berberine, oregano, neem, clove, those things, you probably disrupted your gut balance and allowed the yeast to overgrow, like what happens when you take conventional antibiotics. Um, or your body is getting now a little bit stronger, your immune system's working a little bit better, now it's able to address the yeast problem that's probably been there for a while. So they would be my two thoughts. So I would really recommend working with someone and not self-treating because it could be that you're making things worse or it could be that you're on the right track and you just need some guidance. So it's hard for me to say because I don't know other things. But Crohn's disease is usually due to gut infections. I would consider looking into parasites. Um, it is an autoimmune condition. So if you listen back to the, um, the information I just gave on gluten, stress, and gut health, um, that's going to be still relevant to you as well with this autoimmune condition. So have a look into parasites and get some support just to guide you along the way because I don't want you to make things worse. Is there anything we can do for, with nutrition for early ovarian insufficiency? So that is a complex condition. Oops, let me, I've taken my comments off. So it is a multiple, um, multiple different factors involved and you can't just kind of eat your way out of this problem because there's so many things. Is it autoimmune in nature? Is it stress and thyroid related? Is it poor gut health? Do you have a chronic infection or heavy metals, environmental exposures? But with nutrition, there are things that you can do to support just hormones overall, support your gut health if you tolerate things like fermented foods um, and fibers and antioxidant-rich foods, things like CoQ10 from organ meats. Um, heart in particular is really rich in CoQ10 and can help with protecting the, the ovaries and the follicles in the, um, the ovaries. Because sometimes it's the damage from the environment that's caused you to lose ovarian function earlier on in life and it can be reversed so i know that they say it's just something you have to deal with it's not i've seen it happen um, over and over again where people are diagnosed with insufficient ovarian failure and they magically um not magically because they they do the work and they figure it out um so things that help with um ovulation is what you want to think of and just general overall a lot of it is the basic stuff so don't overcomplicate things, but I would potentially recommend doing some more in-depth functional lab testing if you've been doing the basic stuff for hormonal health and maybe you've seen some improvements with other symptoms 
but you're just stuck. I would consider heavy metals and minerals, infections, environmental toxicities next in line, things like mold as well. Are golden linseeds the same as flax seeds? Do they have the same health benefits? Yeah, I think they are. I think in the UK, we, they're labeled as linseeds or flax seeds. So I think so. Um, if anyone knows for definite, then please let me know. But same health benefits. So you've got the phytoestrogenic effects in there. So it can block some of the bad estrogens, flush out, um, block some of the, yeah, the estrogens from the body that are bad and flush them out of the system. They're high in fiber. They can help with sex hormone binding globulin levels. So binding onto um, excessive estrogen or testosterone and other androgens. So if you tolerate them, then you are fine. But just don't overdo it. I'd do like two tablespoons max a day. Make sure they're freshly grown if possible. You're not buying bulk bags of pre-grown flax. Is there a possibility of outgrowing an intolerance which showed on testing? So I'm not a fan of food sensitivity testing anyway. And it's because a lot of the time it causes a lot of food fear. And people who maybe did a food sensitivity test three years ago, they're still not eating a range of healthy foods and they're really restricting their diet because of it. So if you're coming back with random healthy foods and a lot of them on a food sensitivity panel, whether it's a hair test, a blood test, a saliva test, I would just say that that is a sign that your gut's leaky. So the food isn't the problem. It's your body that's not breaking it down and absorbing it that's the issue. So if it's coming back with a lot, you just need to work on the leak you've got. And if you were to just remove those foods and swap them to something else, you're probably just going to get sensitized to those as well. So it's a vicious cycle. And I've been there with such a restricted diet. You can't heal when you keep cutting things out. So you can definitely outgrow an intolerance. It's because it's not a real long-term intolerance in the first place. You don't have an allergy by the sense of things. You probably can't outgrow an allergy um, unless it's driven by something like parasites with a dairy allergy. But um, with sensitivities and intolerances, they're just temporary a lot of the time. So if you avoid them or work on healing the gut um, simultaneously, you should be able to add them back in. Your diet should be as varied and diverse as possible. So my answer is yes, and I see it all the time. And I don't like the, the food sensitivity test anyway. The same person had some questions on practitioners specializing in nutrition and gut health for children. I'm not sure what um, country she's in. So if, you've, if you're watching this and you can reach back out, I can try and um, fit you in with someone who specializes in it because there's a few practitioners. That's definitely not my area of expertise. So I always refer on when it comes to children, but she also asks specific tests for a child who has digestive or bowel issues. So I, as I said before, I'm moving away from the stool testing with everyone. They do still come in useful. I also like organic acid tests um, and they're probably good for children as well because it's a urine test. So that might be a little bit less invasive and easier for them to, to do and for you to collect. But yeah, digestive issues. So the stool test would look at absorption levels and um, some parasites, bacteria. The organic acid test would give a, a better overview into fungal markers and yeast um, and some bacteria as well, so dysbiosis. Um, make sure that they've been tested for celiac disease, um, if possible, and multiple times as well. You can't just take one test as gold and 
run with that. So um, celiac testing, markers of calprotectin, which is an inflammatory marker. Your doctor should be able to do this as well. So just um, make sure that they do some investigation because it's not normal. They might just try and um, blow you off, but make sure that they investigate further. So I would say testing may not be necessary if you work with someone. They might just be able to help you navigate the diet and the nutrition and the supplement side of things. Some, depending on the age, um, probiotics can be good. Again, I like the Megaspore. Some of the Cellcore products, like the Parasite Cleansing, might be a good option as well, but um, make sure you, you have someone advising you on that. So a question on how to collect correct low progesterone. So the goal is to um, reduce stresses on the body, which is a number of different things. So mentally and emotional stress, obviously, um, energetic stress. So if you have some sort of limiting beliefs or traumas, that's going to massively affect your hormones. So that's the hard stuff to deal with, but you need to address that at some point. You can't just out supplement your way. There are supplements that can be a band-aid, just give you some symptomatic relief, like Vitex. Um, vitamin C has been shown to help boost progesterone as well. Things like B6 if needed. But um, stress management is key. So making sure that you're eating enough food, you're not deficient in particular nutrients and minerals, and particularly zinc and iodine, really important. Um, check your thyroid, make sure that you're not Hashimoto's or sluggish thyroid not necessarily diagnosable levels. You don't need medication, but suboptimal, I see that all the time. Um, are your adrenals really depleted? Are you over-exercising? Are you not exercising at all? Are you really stagnant? Um, so they should help to strengthen ovulation, and therefore that will have a knock-on effect on progesterone. And investigate PCOS as well if, it's, if you also have other symptoms indicating that. And I just saw you asked a question about cough, about enemas. Yeah, I love them. Depends on the person. If you've got like inflammatory bowel conditions or you have like really depleted um, electrolytes, then probably not. But they've been probably one of the best things that I've ever done for my health because um, they're really great at supporting liver detoxification, the gallbladder, the bile flow, which can be congested a lot of the time, um, leading to hormone imbalances. So I'm a fan as long as you do them correctly. And I like using the coffee enemas as opposed to just water enemas for a little bit more of a boost. Have you heard of histamine intolerance being linked to infertility? Yes. So it's not directly causing the infertility, but it's in a roundabout way. So histamine intolerance can be linked to poor gut health. Poor gut health can be linked to infertility and hormone imbalances. Um, Histamine intolerance can be linked to estrogen dominance, so high estrogen in comparison to progesterone. That can be linked to infertility. Histamine intolerance can be linked to environmental toxins like mold exposure, heavy metals, um, and that, again, can be linked to infertility. So they are linked, but not directly, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, you need to address the root cause, and there's a number of different things. I have a couple of blog posts on my website, and I've mentioned it a few times on my podcast if you're wanting to learn more about histamine, because I've definitely struggled with that. I actually did a recent podcast um, and post, I think it was yes, Monday's post on my feed on the role of copper even. Copper gets a bad rap when it's too high, but when it's too low, it can also impair the breakdown of histamine in the body. So that's an issue that I've been dealing with recently.
So very last question, let's see um, how to correct adrenal fatigue, downstream progesterone. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. If you can quickly clarify in the comments. So I'll just answer the, I'm not sure what you're meaning by the progesterone connection. But adrenal fatigue isn't really like a real term. I understand what you mean and the symptoms are definitely real. But what's actually happening is the adrenals aren't getting tired and worn out. The brain is turning off or turning down the adrenals because it's trying to conserve energy. It's trying to slow you down. It's trying to make you heal and rest. So it's really a brain issue. It's coming back to like, what? why is your brain feeling so sensitive? Why is it so protective at the moment? And that can be for all of those same reasons as low progesterone that I just mentioned. Um, so there is a connection with the adrenal fatigue because if your adrenals are really tanked or your cortisol is extremely high, that's going to be turning down the fertility centers of your brain because if you're environment is potentially unsafe um, and your body doesn't know the difference between a real and perceived stress. So a real stress being chased by a saber-toothed tiger versus sitting on the sofa or the couch worrying about your bills, it causes that same physiological response in the body. So that will tell the body it's not safe to have a potential baby this month in time. So I'm gonna make you less fertile just in case. So that is the connection. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.